Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. my family and I got back from a few weeks traveling around the USA. Uh, since we last visited, my wife's family, Emily's family, have sort of scattered around across the country, and so we made it into more of a, a road trip driving holiday, which meant uh, a lot of driving, long car rides, Airbnbs, and the occasional hotel room. Now, the first night we stayed in a hotel, we were in Salt Lake City, and our kids walked into the hotel room, and they saw the queen bed, and the queen bed, and the fold-out couch all squeezed into this one room, and they realised we were just going to be in there together, and they were pumped. (laughs) They were jumping on the beds, they were jumping across the beds, they were planning who was going to sleep with who, which night, pumped. So excited. Two weeks later, after some more travelling, we came to another hotel room, and the kids walked in, and they saw the queen bed, and the queen bed, and the couch, and they were not pumped. The, the youthful exuberance of young travellers had been replaced by this jaded weariness. Because the, because the idea of being close to others sounds great in theory, right? Like a great idea. It's just the experience that we often find lacking. On the one hand, we desperately need community. I found out this week that lack of social connection increases the risk of premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness kills people. The need for community is hardwired into our DNA. We were created for closeness. But on the other hand, community, work community, social community, church community, is often a place where people experience so much hurt and disappointment. So maybe it's not accurate enough to say that we desperately need community. Maybe it's more accurate to say we desperately need good community. We need community that's more life-giving than life-taking. We need community that's more encouraging than exhausting. We need community that's more joyful than dutiful. We need community that's worth it. But how do we get it? How can we have a community that really is worth being a part of? That's what Philippians 2 is about. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Well, God, we thank you so much for this passage. And whether we've just heard it read for the first time or for the hundredth time, we pray that you would speak to us fresh and use this passage to make us more like Jesus, your son. Amen. All right, quick recap in case you missed it. I did. Uh, Paul is writing to a church in Philippi. Philippi is this Roman colony in northern Greece. So he's writing to this group of Christians, this Christian community in northern Greece. And it's a joyful letter because Paul and the Philippians love one another. They love one another. It's got people in it like the household of Lydia. Lydia was this rich merchant woman that Paul helped meet Jesus one day by a river. It's got people in it like the household of the Roman jailer who was so distressed when after an earthquake he thought all the prisoners had escaped, only to find out that Paul and Silas had stayed. It might even have the the slave girl from whom Paul casted out a demon. These people love Paul. Paul loves them. And they share in a partnership in the gospel. 
They're committed to working together to ensure that more and more and more people in their city or outside their city come to know Jesus as well. They're united by love. They're united by purpose. Which sounds pretty great, right? But there's definitely no such thing as a perfect church and even Philippi wasn't a perfect church. There's pressures from inside the community and from outside the community. We learn in chapter 4 that some of the leaders have started fighting with each other. And we know that in this Roman colony, there's this constant pressure to stop saying that Jesus is Lord and go back to saying that Caesar is Lord. Chapter 1 concludes with Paul saying that if they're going to stand firm against pressure from inside and from outside, then they have to stand firm together. They need deep community. They need community that's worth it. And then he tells them how to have worthwhile community in chapter 2. We're just going to fly through this really long 30-verse chapter. Uh, If I miss anything you really want to understand, sorry, use Slido, ask a question, or chat to me afterwards. But big picture, big picture for this chapter, Paul picks out two behaviours, two attitudes, two mindsets, and says that one of these will make a community and one of these is going to break a community. One of these mindsets is going to wreck a community. The other one could save a community. But before he gets to them, he wants to establish who is responsible for shaping a Christian community. Verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, and he goes on to the mindsets, but who's he addressing? Did you see it? He's not talking to leaders. He's not talking to the people that have been in the church for the longest. He's not just addressing the people that just seem to have a lot of influence over everyone else. He's addressing anyone who's had any encouragement from Jesus, any comfort from his love. He's setting the bar as low as he can for a Christian to make the point that building up a Christian community is the responsibility of everyone in that community. Which means... In your community group, in your Bible study group, you share in the responsibility of shaping that community. If you don't like the vibes, that's an invitation for you to more positively shape that community. Even in a congregation this size, Paul is saying that if you're part of the community, you're partly responsible for the culture of that community. All right. Having established who's responsible, all of us, He gets to the two mindsets, the community-breaking mindset, the community-making mindset. We see them both almost simultaneously. He just mentions them together. But we're going to focus on the community-breaking mindset, then do the other one. From verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition could almost just be translated selfishness. It's about promoting yourself, prioritizing yourself, putting yourself first. Then conceit, just indulge me, let me tell you the Greek. It's kenodoxia, empty glory. Just file that away for later because it comes up. And now I've overhyped it. Oh no, all right. It's thinking too highly of yourself having this inflated opinion of yourself that's ultimately just kind of hollow. 
So, seeking more for yourself, that's selfish ambition. Thinking you deserve more for yourself, that's vain conceit. Then in verse 4, he elaborates a little bit more. He says, this mindset is looking to your own interests first. So maybe the best way to describe this mindset is to just call it selfishness or self-entitlement. Self-entitlement wrecks a community. One of the reasons I love sport is because everything's less subtle in sport. Sport is just so much more simple than actual life. But you sometimes get to watch out real-life dynamics on a sport field and they still seem a little more obvious. So, I've seen self-entitlement wreck so many sports teams over the years. One player wants to score all of the goals and so they don't want to pass the ball, which means poor other players over here who aren't getting the ball passed them, when they eventually do get the ball, they don't want to pass the ball because they've finally got a chance with the ball. And so now we've got more and more players that aren't passing the ball. We've got less and less players that are defending. We've got less and less players that are willing to celebrate someone else's successes because selfishness is infectious. Selfishness is infectious. Now, self-entitlement in a, a church community isn't usually expressed by ball hogging. But in a church, it's expressed in this me-first attitude that kind of just says, what's in it for me? It's expressed in wanting things my way instead of wondering what might be beneficial for other people. So my song preferences, my prayer preferences, my supper preferences, it's expressed in showing up to church only when there isn't a better option or skipping small group this week because I just need some me time. It's expressed in being so eager to talk about myself and my problems that I neglect to spend any time or energy asking something thoughtful of the other person. But maybe self-entitlement in a church community is best expressed through something Paul names in verse 14. Grumbling and complaining. Not positively contributing, not showing gratitude, not recognizing the service of others or the blessings of God, but criticizing, complaining, because we think we deserve more. Verse 14 cuts sharply on me. I struggle with this one as well. And I have to remind myself pretty regularly that fault finding is not a fruit of the Spirit. Complaining can be tricky to deal with because It doesn't always come from terrible motives. Sometimes we complain about church because we care so much about church. We complain about community because we understand how important it is and so we just want it to be better than it is right now. We don't want to have low standards. But the unfortunate reality is that in the act of complaining, when we're complaining to get something better, We're damaging the community actively in that moment. And just like selfishness is infectious, complaining is contagious. Complaining can be so quickly become part of the culture of a community to everyone's loss. I was thinking about how 6pm is doing at complaining. And I feel like we've had a really positive culture shift over the years to have less and less complaining. I'm so thankful for that. I 
vividly remember how bad the end of 2019 got, where people literally left and our community was being so damaged by grumbling. And I'm really thankful I had to go back four years to remember something that bad. But can we please keep guarding against grumbling and complaining in our community because it is toxic. It's poison. If you have concerns about our community, great, fair enough. You probably really care about our community. Pray first and then come and talk to a staff member. That's a really helpful way to deal with it. Guard your own heart against self-entitlement and guard our community against self-entitlement. If we want to build up a community, if we want to help shape a community that's good, that's life-giving, that's worth it, we need to replace self-entitlement with self-sacrifice. That's the other mindset, self-sacrifice. Verse 3 again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So what kind of mindset makes a community? What kind of attitude helps build up a community that's actually worth being a part of? A mindset that looks out for others before we look out for ourselves. The principle at work here in Philippians 2 is this. When I die, we live. When I die, we live. When I sacrifice myself, when we sacrifice ourselves, when we sacrifice our own wants, our own desires, when we delay meeting our own needs to meet the needs of somebody else first, then our community flourishes. And when an increasing number of us are doing this, the greater the impact, the the more we transform our community, the more we flourish, the more we thrive. When I die, we live. When I die, we live. So simple, right? And it's so, so, so hard. How do we go from having a a community where self-entitlement is infectious to a community where self-sacrifice is spreading and spreading. What can we practically do to actually change ourselves, to change our own hearts and change our community to have more of this kind of self-sacrificial mindset? I think the ending of Philippians 2 is really interesting. And I think sometimes people don't quite know what to do with it. Because after this impassioned plea, Paul's been building up, building up, building up to this moment where he's like, when I die, we live! He wants you to feel it. He then suddenly starts talking about travel plans. And it's a bit of, oh, probably could have revised that. Why talk about travel plans now? Why is he saying, hey, I'm going to send my colleague Timothy to you? Why is he saying, hey, Epaphroditus, your friend from your church that's been visiting me, I'm going to send him back to you as well? Because he's not really talking about travel plans here. He's holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus as two men that demonstrate self-sacrifice. Of Timothy, he writes, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Of Epaphroditus, he writes that he almost died for the work of Christ. And Paul writes in verse 29, honour people like him. The people around us can influence us, right? My kids have come back to Australia with American accents. Tracy started saying tomato. It's not like we must have said that word like three times the whole time we were there. We weren't talking about tomatoes all the time, but and yeah, anyway, it's, it's fine. All right. <laughs> but people around us 
influences. And Paul's saying, given that reality, given people are going to influence you, be strategic about who you're going to let influence you. Let the Timothys and the Epaphroditus be the ones who are going to influence you. So I want you to look around at St. Matt's. You don't have to do it. You weren't going to do it right now anyway. I know you. You weren't going to do it now. After the service, I want you to take a literal look around this congregation. And I want you to ask yourself, who here have you seen demonstrate self-sacrifice for the sake of our community? Maybe people that are doing it tonight. Maybe people who do it generally. But who here is demonstrating self-sacrifice? Why are they doing it? How are they doing it? Notice it. Tell them you appreciate it. That's a great way to honour them. And another great way to honour them is to let them be a role model for you. Take something specific that they do and start doing it too. Copy them and become someone worth copying. That's how you change a community. That's how you have a community that's worth it. Not self-entitlement, but self-sacrifice. Because when I die, we live. But I hope you notice that Timothy and Epaphroditus weren't the first role models Paul shared with us. There's an even better role model. There's a perfect example. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, in your community, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We might wonder what royalty would know about humility. But Jesus is an oxymoron. He's a humble king. We might wonder what a master knows about serving, but this master puts the needs of others before his own. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Even though he had every right to think everything of himself, there was no self-entitlement. Rather, he made himself Nothing. Instead of vain conceit, instead of empty glory, literally it says he emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus deserved everything and he settled for nothing. For a world that is obsessed with rights and entitlements and getting what's mine, he chose to be a servant. For a people that will complain every time things go slightly against our expectations, he chose a cross. He died so that we could live. So look at him. Look at his mindset. Marvel at his sacrifice. See how worthy he is and let him start to change you. If we do that, if we honour him, start to copy him, then little by little, more and more, we're going to have a community that's worth it. We're going to have a community that's worthy to be called by his name. Self-sacrifice, not self-entitlement. When I die, we live. Lord God, we can't make this happen on our own. We so badly need your help because our hearts are so inclined towards self-entitlement. But we thank you so much for Jesus.
And we pray that he wouldn't just be our example but our empowerer and he would give us hearts that are willing to risk it all and self-sacrifice for the sake of our community. Lord God, we pray that the result would be that our community would shine in this world like stars in a dark sky as we hold forth the word of life to those who desperately need it. And in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.